You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. I want to share the Word of God with you this morning. Relevant to, I, I would say, a sensitive topic. It's the, the great, like, equalizer amongst humanity of pain and suffering and difficulties and trials. Everybody has to walk through pain and suffering. It's not super helpful for us to compare our pain and and the trials we face with somebody else's. It's never a really helpful endeavor. But there is a beautiful answer for us and it's already been a reference for us as Pastor Alex was leading us Someone else gave me a word just confirming this. The answer is in Jesus himself in the gospel. As we walk through the trials of life and pain and suffering, the most beautiful answer erupts, which is Jesus himself. So I've been finding, and I really have been contending for this morning that the Lord would give us a heavenly perspective on our pain heavenly perspective on suffering and the difficulties that we face. And this is, this is really, really important, that we, we get heaven's eye on it, we get heaven's perspective, that we don't view it from our own psychology and, and human understanding, but we get heaven's wisdom on the trials that we face. I've been finding that a great like, heavenly perspective at, at the heart of much of the battle that we, we walk through is in the waiting, it's in the anticipation. It's in the, the realities of promises yet to be fulfilled. Promises unfulfilled. There's this real inner turmoil as we come up against setbacks, disappointment, betrayal, frustration, pain, and yet we've been given certain beautiful promises, glimpses of glories to come real glimpses, tangible glimpses that have trans- transformed our lives, that have, that have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so we, we feel like we're in this, this waiting pattern, this holding pattern, this, this tension. I want to, in that, point us to Jesus this morning. Me and my son, um, Got to go out hunting recently, and my son got his first, his first deer this year. First time ever, it's kind of a rite of passage. It took me till the age of 36 to, <laughs> to check that one off. So I, I did not grow up being a hunter. Last year, I, I hunted for the very first time. And, uh, and I was told, being that I didn't know anything about hunting, uh, I was told that my first experience was, was not normal. Uh, I, got, I went out. Uh, it was December, and it was 70 degrees. There was a tornado warning. This was last, if you remember this, last winter. Um, and a buck strolled on towards the end of our time. It was quick, because the this, this tornado sirens are going off. The rain was starting. Pulled out the gun, and I shot it. Dropped in one shot. <laughs> I, had, I had a great mentor, so Kyle Trozen. Um, and we rushed out there in the midst of the swirling uh, wind and rain and tornado sirens going off and dealt with the deer. It was wild. It was not a normal hunting experience. 
getting my first deer. My son, though, this, this is what I think uh, kind of got a little bit more real to me this year, kind of what the draw is to hunting. Because my first experience, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's my cup of tea. <laughs> you know? But this year, getting a little bit more of the traditional sense of the hunt, I, uh, I think I, I began to get it. I began to understand that there, there's so much of the thrill in the waiting. There's so much of the thrill in the anticipation of what is to come. And so we went out hunting last Monday. We saw some deer. We watched them for 20, 25 minutes, and my son just couldn't get a, a great shot on them, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to take one of them, you know, wait for something maybe bigger or better. So there was this, like, we're all sitting there in silence, and we're all anticipating what the next move is gonna, what the next move is gonna be, where, where the deer are gonna move, and just the, like the atmosphere is thick with anticipation. And then we didn't get it that first time out. The time came and went, and it was like the anticipation was palpable, and, and it came and went. So my son went out again Tuesday. Similar, the weight, the weight, no deer, and in strolls, one. Poor little doe. Well, big, big doe, supposedly. It was a big doe. And he, and he dropped it. And uh, so proud of him. But I, kind of stepping back now from that experience, I began to get it. Oh, maybe that's the draw to hunting. It's, it's in the anticipation. It's in, it's in the thrill of the wait. It's in the thrill of what is going to happen and when is it going to come. I believe there's so much in the human struggle to the waiting. At the core of our struggle with pain and suffering and setbacks and disappointments, I would see the heavenly perspective being that of waiting. Not so much in the particulars of the, the feelings that we feel, but much more from the waiting of what is to come, the waiting of the glory that we are promised. You see, we're given these guarantees, specifically the person of Holy Spirit. Scripture calls it the deposit of this inheritance of what's to come this down payment, this surety, this certainty, but yet we still wait for, for the fullness of it. I think there's a real beauty in the waiting, and this is something that even Jesus himself submitted himself to, subjected himself to. It's the pain of the, of the waiting. So we're gonna look at Hebrews chapter two. I want to talk about that, the pain of waiting. For, for our family, there's, um, December is marked by anticipation. Our, our, December is our uh, month of, it was the month we got married. Me and my wife got married 15 years this, this December. Um, it's also the month where three of our babies were brought into this world. So December for us not to the same degree of the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, but there's this, there's this anticipation in our home this month. But if you think of like the anticipation for the, the birth of a child, it, it can be excruciating. Those last couple days just feel like they drag on forever. You wake up every day and you're like, today could be the day, or it could not be at all. <laughs> and you wake up the, and you do the same thing again the next day, and again, and again, and all of our kids come late, in our minds late, you know. It can be excruciating, the waiting, the anticipation, but it's the nature of it. And I believe there's an invitation here for us. I want us to grab a hold of this heavenly perspective of waiting. Verse 10, Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, it says, for it was fitting 
that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We're gonna read a, a bunch of verses here, but I just want us to first look at this verse 10. The purpose the Lord is revealing on the earth is that purpose of bringing many sons to glory, which is not so much gender specific, as much as bringing the children of God to himself, revealing his glory through people, through sons and daughters that he's adopting into a family. He's bringing many sons to glory. And how is he revealing this glory through these sons and daughters, through these children? Well, it's through suffering. It's through these, the season of waiting. It's through the season of dealing with pain and in the midst of the pain, placing our trust fully on the Lord and him radiating out his beauty and his selfless love and his mercy and his grace, him being glorified through the trials and tribulations that we face. She's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying it's fitting that in bringing many sons to glory, revealing his plan of redemption to bring sons and daughters to himself and reveal himself through them, that the founder of this salvation, the, the pioneer, the leader, would himself submit himself to suffering. This is the Lord's plan. This is the Lord's purpose. Hebrews chapter eight, verse 29 says that it, the Lord predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is not just particular to, to Hebrews. This is a theme repeated in the New Testament, the Lord's plan on the earth is to reveal his glory through a people. Even before the creation of the universe, the Lord had it in his mind's eye that he wanted to reveal himself through a people, to conform us to the image of his son. Earlier in Romans chapter eight, it says that for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we look around and there's this groaning on the earth and we oftentimes feel it in ourselves. This is that tension of the waiting. We want the glory of God that we have encountered that has changed our lives, that has wrecked our lives, that has turned our lives upside down. We want it to erupt out of us, to spill onto the world around us, for the glory of God to be seen in every facet, in every relationship, in every nook and cranny of our neighborhoods and our cities. That's what the groaning is going on inside of our hearts. That's actually reverberating across creation. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the Lord's plan. And his plan and his way of bringing that out started by he himself coming and submitting himself to the waiting, submitting himself to the pain and to the suffering. Please read that carefully. It says, it was fitting that God, who made all things, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's not to say that the Son of God, Jesus, was not perfect before he came. He was perfect in every way. It's much more that his per perfection was fulfilled. He came and fulfilled the, the requirements that he himself had set in motion. The Lord is not subject to anything, and we'll take this on later in the passage as well. The Lord is not subject to the enemy. 
The Lord is not even subject to the law that he set in motion. The Lord is only subject to himself. So any constraints that we feel like the Lord is under are only placed on by the reality that he's confined to his own character. He can never do things that are contrary to his character and to his nature. He is consistent in every way. As James chapter one tells us, he is this the father of lights. There's no shadow or turning in him. There's no variation or change in him. So he is perfect in that, in that sense of uh, fulfilling perfection, fulfill, fulfilling every constraint that he essentially placed on himself by his own character and by his own nature. This is the Lord's plan to reveal his glory in the midst of suffering. We'll talk about the origin of this suffering and the source of this suffering, but the Lord willingly submitted himself to it. And this is gonna be the invitation for us to be ones who are willing to let the glory of God be revealed despite our pain, despite our suffering. In the midst of marriages that are difficult, this is the stuff I'm talking about, Monday through Saturday, Christian living. When our spouse speaks something spitefully, at us, us holding our tongue, speaking the love of Christ back in return or just not saying anything. That's the glory of God being revealed when one of our children rebels against the Lord and we patiently intercede on their behalf, contending for the promises of God over that child. When we get the diagnosis of a lifetime and we don't allow it to shipwreck our, shipwreck our faith but rather we place our trust fully on Yahweh, Rapha, the Lord that heals. You see, people, this is the glory of God being revealed. This is the glory of God being revealed. The beauty, the word glory means beauty. The beauty of God being revealed in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. Verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We're gonna look at the Lord's way of revealing pain or revealing his glory through suffering in the context of family. It says that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So this one, the son, he came, he's gonna be the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who, who's gonna bring us into right standing with the father, therefore adopting us so we can have the same father as him. And so Jesus has no problem calling us now brothers, calling us siblings. But he, they're talking to first century, primarily Jewish people. That's why they, they, he uses um, the language of sons and brothers. So females in the house, please do not be excluded from this. This is the gospel for all people, male and female. Please understand. This one who sanctifies And those who are being brought in to the, and are sanctified now have one source. That's the Father. And he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to associate himself in the midst of our pain and our muck and our mire and our brokenness and call us brothers. Saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God to the children God has given me. Think, he is saying this is speaking of the son of God. The son of God had to submit himself to a place where he said, I trust 
God. I put my trust in the Father. Does that not just blow your mind? He willingly subjected himself into our brokenness and our pain to the point that he said, I have to trust the Father as well, right alongside. He associates himself with our, our, with our brokenness that we cause by our rebellion. This is the love of God. Verse 14, and this is one reason we're so passionate about safeguarding family. When family is on, is on the attack, the Lord's glory is revealed in family. Specifically, a father and a mother creating an, an atmosphere like heaven in their household. The Lord's glory is revealed in family. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the son came, took on flesh to like have a, a shared common uh, likeness to us, to be called the elder brother, to be, to be one that, that seemed like he came down to our level. He's still God in every way, but he came down to our level like a brother. So he could destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now the enemy, or the, the Lord did not answer to the enemy. The enemy has no power over God. This is again pointing to the Lord keeping in step with his character in every way. And so when the enemy rebelled in his free will, free will rebellion, the Lord had to allow it in that sense in just keeping with his uh, consistent character and nature. But the Lord was never subject to the enemy in any way. He didn't answer, he doesn't answer to the enemy. He was simply displaying to all of creation his power of the enemy that, that was never in question from heaven's perspective. Verse 15, he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Without Christ, that's why this, this struggle is so depressing, it's so hopeless. It's like lifelong slavery, having nothing but a fear for the impending death that we're reminded of all around us. The son delivers us from that sort of slavery. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abram, or Abraham. Think of that. The Lord didn't go after and rescue the, rebe the rebellion that happened in the cosmos before the creation of the earth there was this rebellion that took place. The Lord didn't pursue those that rebelled against him in the heavenly hosts. There's something unique about humanity. The fact that we bear his image, that we reflect his glory that's different than the angelic hosts. And the Lord rescued us. He goes and delivers us. Unlike the way he allowed the angelic hosts to rebel in free will and that was their demise. That was their destiny then. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, again, he had to be made. The only way he had to do anything was inconsistency with his own character. Please just understand that correctly. He wanted to associate with us to perfectly reveal what he's like so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people or make atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus is our all in all. As, as a church, as a church family, the Lord is revealing himself, his glory in our midst as we look to him as our all in all. He becomes the high priest that does the work of mediating between God and humanity. He came into the holy of holies because not, not because of sacrifices he had made with animals, but because of his own character. He could come into the very holy of holies and there make a sacrifice. You know what that sacrifice was? It was he himself. So we see in Jesus as being the all in all of the church. He is the temple. That's what he calls himself. He says he is the, the resting place of God. He is the, the embodiment in the fullest sense of the presence of God. He calls himself the temple in the gospels, if you recall that. Well, here we see he's also the high priest. He's the temple, but he's also the high priest. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the one who allows us to worship a holy God. It's through our high priest, Jesus himself. Well, he also is the sacrifice. He also is the, the atoning lamb of God, the perfect spotless lamb. He is all in all. And that's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter one, that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body, and it's the fullness of him that fills all in all. Jesus is our all in all. That's why in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our difficulties, our trials and our tribulations, we look to our all in all and we see one who, yes, sits above it, but also submitted himself to it. Willingly, he took it on to perfectly reveal himself to us, to win our hearts, and then give us an invitation to reflect that heart to a world around us. So I wanted to summarize we have one who's familiar with our suffering. We have a perfect high priest who is familiar with our suffering. What ways did Jesus suffer? This, one, this is not an exhaustive list, but here are some ways in which Jesus suffered like we did. He was tempted. Temptation is just part of the spiritual reality, the spiritual battle that we, we all face it's frustrating, trust me, it's, it's frustrating that I face temptations. Like we have an encounter with the Lord, we have an encounter with glory, the beauty of, of God. Our hearts are, are won over to him. We make a commitment, a, we devote our lives to him. We're born again, but we get up from those moments and still right there, smack in our face is some temptation. Is some voice trying to convince us that what happened was not legitimate, that our identity is in question, that the Lord's character should be questioned. There's that whisper, the whisper of temptation of the enemy or our flesh. Well, Jesus himself submitted himself to that. We can read those accounts in the gospels very explicitly, like the grueling nature of the suffering that Jesus endured in his temptations. So he's familiar with it. He was tempted. Secondly, he experienced pain, specifically physical pain. And I, I address this not in any way to ever minimize those suffering from chronic pain. There's a reality to it that I can't know, your neighbor can't know, your spouse can't know, and there's so much grace and empathy, please, coming from my heart. 
But the answer is not to wallow in our physical pain, but rather to look to him who willingly, in the midst of emotional, mental, excruciating pain, submitted himself to also physical pain all at once. So no way does that downplay what any person is facing, but rather, we're given an answer to see it from a heavenly perspective of the greater heart of the battle of our pain is in the waiting. It's not so much in the details of the pain, the physical pain, but rather it's in, it's in the waiting. We know we're promised deliverance. We know our Savior came, submitted himself to that very pain that you are experiencing and promised us deliverance, promised us to rescue, he promised to rescue us He already paid for it. He paid for your deliverance. He paid for your healing. He is your healing. And that is the answer every time. And so we just echo his refrain. What was his refrain? His refrain, we read it from Psalms. I will trust in him. I will trust in the Father. I will trust in the Father. So he was tempted. He experienced pain. Third, he experienced betrayal. This is a a real part of our pain and our suffering in this world is people will stab us in the back, they will betray our trust, they will break our trust, they'll break our confidence, they will disappoint us. And we have an elder brother who went before us and willingly submitted himself to betrayal. He knew that was going to happen and it wasn't just from Judas, it was from others. It was from the other slew, the the armies of disciples that turned away from him when his message got difficult. It was from the other of the 12 that turned their back on him when really push came to shove in the midst of the crucifixion, in the midst of his death, he experienced betrayal. Fourth, he experienced being left alone. The excruciating pain of loneliness, we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, his, the, the pain of so much so that it like physically looked like his, his sweat became blood Fifth, the experience being misunderstood and wrongly accused. This is the king of the universe, the maker of all things, the one that the book of Hebrews said, for whom and by whom all things exist, being born into poverty and obscurity and a cradle, willingly subjecting himself to the very creation that he made, that he was there when it was all made. So his entire life is one of being misunderstood and and wrongly accused. And obviously that was then what led to his crucifixion. So we have one who's familiar with that aspect of our suffering. Six, he experienced the pain of excruciating waiting. 33 years of waiting, in fact just waiting 30 of those years in complete obscurity. Tiny village in Galilee, in Nazareth. 30 years of waiting, being anonymous, not opening up his mouth because it wasn't time, allowing a miracle to take place, but then quickly exiting because it wasn't time. It wasn't time for his glory to be revealed to that degree. 
So we have one who is familiar with our suffering. Isaiah chapter 53, verse three says that he was despised and rejected by, man, uh, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Secondly, so we have one who's familiar with our suffering. Secondly, we have one who overcame suffering for us and as us. I want to make clear that Jesus overcame suffering. And if he overcame the suffering, that means he is not the author of the suffering. He suffered, but it was not self-inflicted suffering. This was the suffering as a result of our rebellion. And even more so the rebellion that that started in the heavenly places when Lucifer and his army of angels rebelled. Suffering always has its, its origin in rebellion against God, against his, his rule and his reign. I'm not saying that every time you suffer, it's a result of your sin. That's between you and the Lord. But I'm saying in the very fabric of how this all works, of cause and effect, the Lord is not the author of the suffering. He suffered, but he overcame the suffering. His heart remained unmoved. He was fully devoted to the Father, perfectly, for all 33 years as he subjected himself to the pain and the suffering. His heart was unmoved in devotion and allegiance to the Father. The Father's agenda was supreme. So as we look at this one who overcame suffering, we need to understand that suffering has always been the result of the rebellion. He overcame despite the chaos. This is why he's revealed as supreme king of everything. And it's important that then we we admit that the Lord didn't create it. We stop pointing the finger at the Lord for what we're facing, for the pain that we're walking through, the suffering that we're experiencing. We stop pointing our finger at the Lord. The Lord doesn't create our suffering. That would be That'd be a cruel parenting. If we, if we create moments for our kids to suffer, that's, that's like child cruelty, right? The Lord didn't do that. It's the result of our own suffering. I just want the Lord's, the Lord doesn't need me to protect his reputation. I just, there's this desire for us to sort of look scripturally, have a, have a, have a heavenly perspective on these things. But at the same time, the Lord doesn't make it all go away either. Because that's not good parenting either, is it? If every time our kids suffer in some difficult way, we just snap our fingers and make it all go away, they're gonna pay consequences down the road. Because there's not a a depth of maturity being developed in their hearts. You see, the Lord's glory being revealed in us is directly tied to our maturity And and without the maturity and the depth of the work in the inner places of our heart, his glory will crush us. So it is his grace to take us on a journey of developing the inner character and maturity to carry his glory in a way that's revealed then to people. From victory to victory in our life, breakthrough to breakthrough, testimony to testimony, from glory to glory, 
So I think it's important that we're consistent in how we talk about God. As Jesus came on the earth and he dealt with a revelation of the kingdom, he revealed the kingdom. He said, the kingdom is here. Hey, behold, the kingdom is here. And what was his revelation of the kingdom? It was to bring healing and deliverance and to rescue people that were oppressed. He set his, he set his hands on the blind and they were healed. On the lame, they rose up. Every time Jesus dealt with pain and sickness, he attributed it to the enemy. So we need to stop doing this as a, as a church, attributing sickness specifically to the Lord. It comes from one place. It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from the result of, of rebellion. Again, not necessarily your own rebellion, but rebellion, yes. The enemy is the author of these things, and the Lord is the answer. He is the one who overcame. So the discipline the Lord is calling us is to see these things rightly, and the Lord is entrusting us with something to be in the midst of a process and allow our hearts to continually be thrown before him, that our trust would be in him, and him, him to be our sustaining source as we overcome from glory to glory. So we have one who's familiar with our suffering. Secondly, we have one who overcame suffering. And thirdly, we have one who shows us the way out. I'm gonna invite Tony to come to the keys. We have one who shows us the way out. The, the writer of Hebrews said that he is the founder. That's the translation we read here this morning in the standard version. Another translation says the pioneer of our faith. Another, leader, another uh, translation says the leader of our salvation. So we have one who willingly submitted himself as a result of the rebellion and the suffering and pain that took place. He submitted himself to it to perfectly reveal his character and to show us the way out. Show us, just, just follow me. Follow me as I endure this pain and the suffering and the wickedness as a result of the rebellion. I'm gonna show you the way out. Follow my lead, folks. I'm, I'm trailblazing a path here. He is leading our triumphant procession. So my, my simple plea to you, regardless of what you're facing, would you just give the Lord a chance to show up for you? We're always tempted to forgo the process for the sake of the moment. Let's just be honest. We want an easy out. We want that helicopter parent that, that will just snap a finger. But what if the Lord knew best? What if our source, the Father, knew best? He knew what we could handle. Maybe we couldn't handle his quick answer in that moment, his quick deliverance. Maybe there's something deeper the Lord is developing in us and wants to reveal through us. The Lord is our help. You see, that's our grace here in Hebrews chapter two. He was made like our brother in every respect. So he could be this merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. It says he himself has suffered when tempted and he's able to help those who are being tempted. There's a promise there. We have a great high priest that came and revealed his mercy and his faithfulness for a very relevant reason. So he can help us in our time of suffering, in our time of temptation, in our time of difficulty. 
The Lord provides a way out. I just want to read a couple other passages, then we will close, I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. With temptation, he'll always provide the way of escape that you may be, may be able to endure it. There is no pain, no situation of which the Lord is leaving you hanging, in which he is leaving you abandoned to yourself. But rather the Lord is entrusting you with something. He's entrusting you with an opportunity to see his path to victory in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficulty. There's always a way out. He is that way out. He is that path to victory. He overcame whatever it is you're facing. We have one who shows us the way out. One more passage, sorry. 2 Corinthians. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the glory of God being revealed through the sons of God. His glory being revealed through us is that there is an inner revelation that is increasing while the outer, like our outer shell is maybe decaying and declining, but inside there is brewing this eruption of resurrection life and glory. It's being being released to the people around us and being a testimony to everyone we come into contact with. For this this light momentary affliction is just preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. It's really the Lord's mercy. This light, this is Paul, the guy who probably experienced more pain and affliction than any of us. He, there's, uh, he'll later, he'll, he'll list all the ways in which he suffered. But he calls it light and momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's why I say it's a heavenly perspective. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.